continuing our study in the book of Genesis. Last time we were here, we dealt with the separation of Lot from Abraham, or Abram, as his name is called at this present moment. And there was a theophany. And by the way, I don't know if I ever uh, gave you guys an explanation or a definition of a theophany. A theophany is a, an appearance of God in some form or another. The form could be in a human physical form, or it could be in the form of light, or even as a fire. But the, the, the bottom line is, it is God making his presence or his form seen, known, in some physical way. So there was a theophany that God had made with Abram that we see at the end of chapter 13. And God once again encouraged him to look at the land of promise and to survey the land of promise. And God reiterated that promise to Abram that he would give that land to him. All right. Now, as we're getting into chapter 14, we're seeing one of the first. It was kind of like an international skirmish or you can kind of think of it as like like a first world war. And it's not like a world war in the whole world. That's not what we mean. But the idea, the principal fact, what we see a group of nations, and this is the first time where we see a confederacy of nations joining together against a confederacy of other nations coming together at war with one another. And that's why I call it, I'm, pretty, I'm saying like in the sense of a world war, all right? But it's a war of nations in the Transjordan area. And this is the first time that we see this in the scripture, in the Bible itself, this sense of like a world war, that is nations fighting against other nations, all right? And this is what is going to take place in chapter 14, as well as another peculiar event, but I don't want to talk about it at this time, so let's just simply go to the scriptures and we'll talk about that when we get there. All right, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now, let me just simply pause here, guys, while I'm reading the scriptures. I'm not going to get so much into the names and the meanings of the names. I may make a comment about it, okay? But I don't want to get it. I don't think it's so much important. And to be honest with you guys, I don't want to get, I don't want to bore you down. And I don't want to get too particular into the event itself because it can be kind of boring to some people. But I do want to just simply highlight the important parts that I think that is necessary for you to see and appreciate in the study of the text. All right. So we don't want to get into all of the nuances and all of the things. That's what I'm saying. All right. So now let me go back to the scriptures and we'll work our way through it. So it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedale Amor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. And these are, so I, so I tell you what, let me just simply stop there. So what we basically have is a confederacy, a joining of four kings. And it mentions Amraphel, and, and notice Amraphel, uh, king of Shinar. And there's a sense of um, importance that we see with Shinar, because remember, Shinar is ancient Babylon. We also saw this earlier in chapter 10. Remember when we saw this whole Tower of Babel 
incidents. Remember that? So there is a sense of importance here, even with ancient Babylon. And what is also important, too, that you'll see as we move further down the text, Kerala Emor is actually the leader. But even here, interesting enough that Shinar gives the first, is the first one mentioned here in the text. So it is Armaphel, one king, Arioch, second king, uh, Kerala Emor, who will be the leading king, third, and title king of goim and goim is actually the hebrew word for nations or gentile okay so he was some man probably of a hittite origin a great number of hittite people but these are the four kings who are in confederacy against verse two that they made war so the first set are the antagonists who are they against verse two they made war with bira and who is bira king of sodom with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zevoim, and king of Bela, and this would be from the regions of Zoar. Now, another thing, too, before we even get into these particular five kings, um, we will find that, interesting enough, these are the kings who are in the area of chapter Genesis 18 and 19 of the regions of Sodom and Gomorrah, who will later on be destroyed by God, all right? But nevertheless, so here is, as we mentioned earlier in verse, verse number one, the four kings, the antagonists, against these five kings, the protagonists, these five kings are Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemeba, and without one given a name, the king of Bela, all right? So, and now we're going to get into the particular events of this war in the area of the trans in the Transjordan area as we move through verses three and beyond. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So we have the four kings, verse number one, against the five kings. What happened? Verse number four. Twelve years they had served Kittale Amor, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. So what happened? The king of, when we look at the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse number two, they were basically vassal kings. They, and, when you, and just in case you don't understand it, vassal kings simply means these are nations, states, or whatever that have submitted to the authority of another king or another state, all right? And usually this happens in the payments of certain royalties and things of that nature, usually on a yearly basis, but whatever, or even to be in that authority, to be called to war, or just simply to be in subjugation. So whatever is the deal, these five kings, the Sodom and Gomorrah guys, for 12 years were in subjugation to the four kings, namely the ones led by forgive me for the mispronunciation of the name God, but they were in subjugation and they decided to no longer, they rebelled against him. So he has now come in war to bring them back into that is Sodom and Gomorrah and those kingdoms that we mentioned in verse number two, to bring them back in subjugation to him. And so that's what's taking place. And it started, they broke in the 13th year. So we're going to see in the 14th year in verse number five and beyond, that's when the war actually begins. 
So let's go in five. In the 14th year, Kedala Amor and the kings that were with him, the ones we mentioned in verse number one, came and defeated the Raphaim and Ashtaroth Kanaim and the Zuzim and Inham and Emim in Shavah Kerathaim. Now, I don't want to get into all of these names. And, and, and that's what I was trying to tell you guys earlier. We didn't want to bore you to death with all of this. But what we basically see is this is the beginning of the war. And, and, and notice what we see is he's beginning with the outskirts, the outskirts of the particular if you can, let me call it like the nations or whatever, but the idea of these peoples that were in this particular region. So what we see him doing is he's beginning to conquer the people in these regions as he's moving toward the area of interest. What is the area of interest? Remember the people who are rebelling, Sodom, Gomorrah, and these people, Atma, and all of this stuff that we mentioned earlier. So he's just moving through the regions and he's subjugating these people, all of these people, making war against these peoples once again. And so, and all of these are the particular names and these particular peoples are, are, are ethnic groups that you will see that are in the areas uh, that Kirtler Moore and his Confederate group are working and so and they're just moving through so that's why we kind of call it in a sense guys a world war all right but we don't want to get into all of these names and all of that but you're reading them along with me and you're simply seeing him marching through the areas and not so much destroying but once again the subjugation of these peoples and ethnic groups okay so now let's just move to verse number six as we continue with these people and the Horites in Mount Seir. And now notice now another thing too, guys, as we talk about these particular names, Mount Seir and all of this, a lot of these names are references to the future names that they will have. Okay. So these are ancient people that they're speaking of that um, Moses is writing about, but with respect to even the future name, because Mount Seir actually will come from Edom. Okay. A son of Jacob. He hadn't even been born yet, but the reference he's giving is to the state where, where, as Moses would simply say, that we know it now as Mount Seir. He's saying, so the people who are reading this text would say, oh, I understand what you're saying, Moses, is in that area over there. And so that's the references to the names. So sometimes he'll give the ancient references to the names, and we'll make mention of that at, at certain points. I'll do that sometimes. But. For the most part, you'll see the references to these particular names being made with those future references. All right. So that the people that Moses is talking to in his time and beyond, they understand and relate to the area that he's talking about. These ancient areas so long ago. OK, so let's go. So in the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness seven. Then they turned back and they came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh Barnea. Now, this is, is a southern area that Israel was once located. So once he continued, he conquered, that is, Kirtle Amor, conquered those people. He turns back in a southern region and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also 
the Amorites who lived in the Hazazon Tamar. And we don't want to get in the air, but the point is, you see him moving from the southern region in the Transjordan area, Transjordan area, as he conquers these ethnic groups to make them vassal nations or under subjugation to himself. Okay. All right. So let's continue on. So then they turned back and came. Okay. I, I just dealt with that. Verse eight is where I am. And the king of Sodom, that's where we're trying to get to. And the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adama, king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim. So now we're getting to the root of where we were headed for, or Kettle of Amor in the first place. Remember, the four kings, Kettle of Amor, against the five kings, the Sodom and Gomorrah kings. So what they have done is they have set themselves in battle array, and they are now in the valley of Siddim against Shedalamor, verse number nine. Let's move through the text so we can get into the battle. Against Kedalamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and all we're simply doing is mentioning once again the four kings. And Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against the five. So we see we have a battle set against basically the kings led by Kedalamor, four kings, kings led basically by the king of Bera of Sodom, five kings. And now they are set in battle array to fight one another. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim, now tell me about this part, was full of tar pits. Now this tar pits comes basically from the Hebrew word that we understand what we see for asphalt today. Okay. And this no doubt was very uh, productive part of land. These tat, these so-called tar pits, because it would be used good for building and construction. But nevertheless, the land was full of these particular tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. So what happened? In the battle against the four kings against the five, Kedalea Amor, he actually won the battle and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were defeated in the battle. But what is interesting in verse number 10, not only were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah defeated in the battles and their armies ran away, notice it said they fell into those particular, they also fell in the battle and even into these tar pits. That means the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were killed in the battle. And that becomes important when we look at the remaining of the text, when we see a new king coming out to meet Abram. Now, we're not there yet, but it's important to remember that these kings had died in battle, okay? And their armies fled into the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Now that is what activates or engages Abram in this whole entire conflict. Otherwise, Abram could have cared less what was particularly going on with these four kings fighting against the five. It's the fact that we see now that Lot has been taken and his possessions and his people 
in this battle as a part of the possessions of Cadel Amor of the four kings, all right? So Lot has now been taken captive along with his people. And so therefore, this will make Abram become involved in this particular conflict. All right. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, that's the first time we see that particular term being used for Abram, calling him the Hebrew with respect to a certain ethnic group of later on, we will say the Jewish people, but now simply the ethnic group as the Hebrew. And this also lets us see that Abram has become uh, a large and um, a large Semitic group of people. It's not just some small little band of people, but it's of a significant size. But nevertheless, let's continue. So the fugitive came, that is a person who came from the war, um, and told to Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living, Abram, by the oaks of Mamre. Remember, we see that in Genesis 3 and 18. But let me stop giving so much commentary and read the scripture. He was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amrite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Anah, and these were allies with him. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now let's stop there and talk about that. So now we have a person who has escaped the war on, from the size of the, um, the Sodom and Gomorrah people, because remember Lot had, was, had been living in, had, was now living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was now captured by Kirtle Amor and his forces. So now the person has escaped. He has told Abram all the things that had happened, namely that Lot and his people were captured. Abram, the last time we saw Genesis 3 and 18, he was living by the Oaks of Mamre. And we're not going to get into all of that, but it's particularly in that particular vicinity with Mamre. But notice it also mentions in verse 13, his brothers, Eschol, Enoch. So what is and it said they were allies because it also shows for for Abram to have to make a covenant agreement with these particular men so that they will be his allies. Once again, shows the significance of the growth of the, of Abram's people, of Abram himself, uh, the, the size of Abram's tribe and all of that. And, and even the inclusiveness of his wealth. In other words, Abram was a great man that we can see, see here, right? And number two, they were now allies with him. And this was a benefit to Abram, which simply meant this. Since Abram, whatever war Abram would be involved in or whatever fight or battles or whatever, because they were his allies, they were also obligated to go to battle with Abram. So that's why these particular men are mentioned because they would be obligated because the, as allies of Abram to go into battle or war with Abram. And so Abram's mind is set, of course, to go and rescue Lot. Abram's not so much concerned with just simply getting into battle, but he's concerned with going into rescue Lot. And so therefore these men, Mamre and his brothers, are obligated to help Abram in his conquest. But anyway, so we also see too, now, Usually, Abram is considered this particular man of blessing. We see that in Genesis chapter 12. This is one of the first times and pretty much the only time we see concerning Abram. Abraham is now depicted 
as a man of war. And always we want to remember Abram is the man that God has made these promises to. So here also too is that you, you have to keep in mind the promise because Abram is going into battle, right? What can happen to a person when you engage in physical conflict like this? You can die. Abram could also die. But now we know, even though we're saying this in an assumptive manner like this, Abram could die. But we know Abraham cannot die. Why? God has made him a promise to give him a seed, to give him these many people as the stars of the sky. And guess what? Abraham hadn't had a single child at this particular moment. So even though, so here is the test of faith. And that's what I want you to see. Even now. And so, but Abraham cannot die because God has not fulfilled his promise to Abram. But nevertheless, we also see the greatness in Abram. See, we said, talked about 318 men of war. That is men who are able at the age to go into war, not counting women and even children. So the household of Abram is great at this time because it said these men were born in Abram's house and were ready and prepare to even make war alongside of Abram. So Abram is clearly a great man amongst these people or amongst the Canaanites. That's what we also see. All right, but let's continue uh, with the battle. And so he fought against Kirtle Amor. I'm at the end of verse number 14. And he won. This was a great battle. And the thing that you have to see is, he, and he said he pursued them as far as Dan. That is the northern part. That what would be the northern part of Israel, which is a, a great distance. I think about 120 miles. So this was a great victory. And, and it, uh, the thing that we see with Abram is that he only had a small group of men. It was significant. But nevertheless, it was a small group of men. But it was against these four kings who defeated the five kings. So Abram had a great victory. And that is, we see God working in that covenant promise that he said to Abram. What does he say? I will bless those who bless you. And I will also what? Curse those who curse you. So this is the reason why God has given Abram this great victory over a, a, a number of people that normally you would have lost to. So it is a victory showing God's keeping his covenant promise with Abram. From later on, the Jewish people will be able to, to take consolence in this, how God would help them in their battles against their enemies. You'll see that also in the book of Judges. You'll see that also as Israel coming to the promised land, that God is faithful and God will keep them and God will be with them and God will fight their battles just like he did for their father, Abram. Okay, but let me finish. So let's talk about the battle and exactly how it was won. And that's how the rest of the verses kind of work themselves out in this area. 15, what did Abram do? He divided his forces against them by night. Untraditional way to fight, non-traditional. He and his servants and defeated them, pursued them as far as Havah, which is north of Damascus. 16, he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions, also the women and the people. So what happened? It, he fought a non-traditional battle. He fought it at night. 
he separated, divided his servants. Why? He didn't have that many, 318, not a lot, especially against those four kings. But nevertheless, God used that small number to bring about a great victory. And he defeated them. Remember earlier, he de brought, defeated them, ran them as far as Dan. He even went even farther to even beyond Dan, Hobah. So it was a great victory and pursued them literally out of what would be the promised land. And in the end, victory was accomplished. His objective was accomplished. What did he go to do? Abraham did not enter into battle simply to fight. He went to rescue Lot and that by the grace of God, he did just that. He brought, but notice now Abram is now the victor. He has brought back Lot, his relative, along with all of Lot's possessions, along with all of the possessions that these four kings had taken, along with all of the possessions that they had. And now one thing that you have to remember as we prepare to move into this next section is Abram had as the victor. This is the rule. These are the rules of war. As the one who has conquered, Abram has the right to the people. The people rightfully now belong to Abram as his servants. There are his possessions and the possessions that he took. These are the gains of war. The only thing that Abram is obligated and Abram is the leader. Okay. And the only thing that Abram is obligated to do is share some of the spoils with, remember, Mamre and his brothers who were allies with Abram. That's the only thing he's obligated to do. But nevertheless, these things rightfully belong to Abram. All right. All right. I think what we'll do here, guys, we'll stop at this particular section and we'll begin a new section as we talk about what happens with Abram once he leaves this great battle? All right, guys, catch you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe now.